0: Uh, so, uh, I am one of those people who it's eight o'clock in the morning. Um, I know there are some early birds out there who are like, I've cleaned my house and painted the bathroom, you know, already. Um, that's not me. So, uh, before I start my pitch, I just want to say that, um, in the mornings I'm very watery, which for me means I'm just very raw and I'm very emotional, which is not a bad thing to be in in the rooms. Um, I wanna thank people who uh, heard me last night and knowingly are here listening to me again. Um, I wanna congratulate, is it Ev, for joining the 21st century technology and getting a, a cell phone. Um, uh, so I, um I'm very emotional right now. Um for and again this is before I go into my pitch. Uh I um sadly at this moment I've never regretted more not being Canadian. Um and there's just a lot going on in my country and it's very distressing and it's a full moon and um which you know uh, the more that I get into my body, the more that my body responds to the seasons, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think it means that I'm just getting more in tune. Um, and yeah, it's just a very difficult time. So part of uh, the reason I agreed to do this Northern Lights is so that I could get people's addresses in case I need to seek asylum. Um, but uh you know, my friends and I are actually saying that. Like, we're just like, you know, what's Canada's immigration law right now? Um, but anyway, so I'm going to do my best. Uh, and um, and I'm not, I cannot even guarantee right now coherence. So that's why I'm doing this little disclaimer. What I can guarantee is that um, authenticity and sincerity and um, devotion uh, to uh, 12-step recovery. Um, That's what I can definitely guarantee. So I'd like to start with um, just every morning, I get on my knees and I do the third step prayer. And here's what that means to me if anyone struggled. So as I said last night, um, I'm more a Unitarian Universalist um, in the sense that uh, I'm Pagan, Buddhist, New Thought, Christian, Jew, part-time Hindu, Muslim. And, and I want to speak to this, which is is that um, I had to make peace with a lot of the prayers in 12-step in, in because that's not my tradition. Now, if it's your tradition, it might be a little easier for you, but if it's not, you can sort of struggle with the prayers. And so one of the things that uh, I did with the third step prayer, because it was part of my homework assignment, was to say it every morning, is to me, the third step prayer is the 12 step prayer. And it's the prayer that says, today, I choose recovery. And I choose to be a part of my 12 step fellowship. And that's why every morning I roll out of bed onto my knees um someone taught me that, and I do this and if I do that every morning, then I don't have to worry about forgetting and Then I do the third step prayer as written as a way of saying like today I choose to be a part of the legacy of um, Bill and Dr. Bob, which is where this prayer comes from, and so That really helps me always start my day. It also reminds me that every morning of every day, if I end this day sober and abstinent, um, and sober for me, what I mean by sober is, you know, I'm not an alcoholic in a traditional sense, but sober from all of my compulsions, you know, all the different ways that I can act out, you know, that I'm so emotionally sober and abstinent, if. If that's all I do today, A-plus for the day. Like, that's all that I have to do. And so um, that's quite a long preface, but uh, it's just where I'm at today. So for those who would like to join, that's fine, but I need to do this. God, I offer myself to Thee to build with me and do with me as Thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will, take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And when I think of may I do thy will always, what I think of is when I joined when I joined, when I stopped attending meetings as if I was going to school and I was just in a classroom and I was just surrounded by classmates that I didn't necessarily have to get to know too well. When I shifted from taking what I like, leaving the rest, going to, to OA and just, you know, thinking like, okay, give me the information, just like in school, right? I'm gonna go to this class, Give me the information, then I'm gonna go home to my life and incorporate this information. That's attending 12 step meetings. When I decided to join the fellowship, I was really shifting to um, our great, you know, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Meaning that what is best for the team is what's best for me and how I think about that is I think about the fear team and The love team and I was raised because I was raised in an alcoholic home um, I was raised on the fear team and the fear team is ego driven. It's all about might makes right Um, He who dies with the most toys wins It's my agenda That's competing with your agenda, and I'll support your agenda as long as my agenda is getting um, satisfied first, then I'll help you. It's just very much that sort of capitalistic, individualistic, you know, king of the mountain kind of, you know, uh, mentality. And that's where I came from. Very selfish, self centered. Um, I'm invested in my own self interest. And when I joined 12-step uh, in the sense where I stopped attending and I joined it the way that you would join a tribe and started studying the traditions and realized these were my people and I needed to take care of the group as much as I needed to take care of myself, that that's when my um, I start I joined the love team. And my analogy around that is that when I joined the love team, I realized that If I take care of the team, the team takes care of me. And how I need to take care of the team is the first thing is I have to make sure I'm a good teammate. And that's where I need to work my program and be abstinent and carry the message that then the group um, carries the message. So what's best for the team is what's best for me and what's best for me is what's best for the team. It's a very intra-dependent and, and and it's very sort of tribal in that way. And so every time I do the third step prayer in the morning, I'm reminding myself that, that today I choose to be a member of um, my 12-step communities, and I choose to be a member of the love team, and I choose to make love my guiding principle. So whenever I don't know what to do or I don't know what to say, whatever situation it is, I will say, what would love do here? Um, what would what does love look like in this situation? Love is a noun and a verb. I like to think of love as a verb. Like love is a verb. Like if I if I love you and I don't demonstrate that in any way, then what it's it's no use to you. I'm having an internal experience that's very selfish. But if I love you, then that energy manifests itself outward. So it's both a wave and a particle. Love is a noun and a verb. So love is action. So again, if I'm going to be a member of the love team, then it's like, well, what does love look like in this situation? What does love look like um, verbally? What does love look like in my action? And that way, if I don't know what to do, I can just ask myself that question and and. 9.9 times out of 10, I get the guidance that I need, um, so, uh, that's, wow, that is a freaking long preface, um, to relapse recovery, (laughs) but, um, it's just where I'm at, I didn't, I told you I wasn't going to be coherent, um, but this is how I start my morning, and you guys are doing my morning with me, so, Um, I want to also take a moment to thank everyone for, um, you know, showing up last night. It's very hard and vulnerable to talk about my insides and to talk about my experience. But I, when I'm with you guys, I'm not afraid to do that, even on a Zoom meeting where you're not in the room, because I feel the sanctuary and the safety, um, uh, of and the sacredness of the 12 step room, so thank you for that and the reason why I'm saying that is because now I'm going to talk about my relapses um, which you know has been difficult. Uh, however, I did check my um, let's see I saw you on here and I did check my zoom thing and it actually worked so I don't know what happened yesterday i'm going to try and share my screen. oh now it's decided to work. <laughs> Okay. So, um I'm going to show the pictures that I wasn't able to show. So, this is um this is me and my mom and I'm 18. Um so that's probably around 200. You know, 180 185 to 200, who knows. And then um I wonder if I can just no, I think I have to stop sharing and then share again my other picture. And then this says um, 1993, but I don't think it is. I think it's maybe 91 or something. But anyway, so that's just, those are pictures that just give you an idea of, um, you know, my recovery. Because again, we come in here. I remember the first time I came into the rooms and I saw people who were normal size. I was like, well, what is she doing in the rooms? And it wasn't until like, the pictures went around and I was like, oh my God, you know, um, and so uh, base, I do want to save time for questions. So um, I came in overweight, lost the weight, and then my story is, and I alluded to this a little bit, is that uh, I, as I was losing the weight, which was very slow for me, um, I think I said, like I said, I lost like the first um, 10 or 15 or 15 or 20 pounds pretty quickly because I was so high up. And, and that, and that was my pink cloud abstinence. And then it got me to that place where I was always a little bit stuck. Also, um, I can do a diet. And that's what I think a lot of times the pink cloud abstinence is it, from my experience and from listening is that we come in, we all know how to diet. And so in the beginning, it's like, Oh, I get to diet. I get a weigh and pay plan for free. You know what I mean? And so I and so because we don't know what we don't know. So we come in with what we know, which is, oh, you're going to put me on a restricted food plan and then I'm going to go to these support meetings. Except this time I don't have to pay for anything. And so in the beginning, it can kind of feel like, oh, I know how to do this part. And then in my experience and, and experience with a lot of us And then we hit that wall where it's like, oh, well, normally that time where we would break our diet, we're not supposed to break it. We're supposed to keep going, you know? And that's the moment where the rubber hits the road and all of a sudden it's like recognizing that the food is but a symptom. And that's when you start to realize, on some level or not, that 12 step OA, I'm just gonna say OA, also footnote, Big supporter of ABA, and if you haven't read that book, I would highly recommend reading that book. Um, My sponsor and I, I read it, I gave it to my sponsor, we both love it, and I think, and I don't have to leave OA for that book, but I think it is an incredible compliment, Um, and I really want to support ABA. But anyway, um, for people who don't know, that's Anorexic Bulimics Anonymous, and their book is amazing, so, um, and that, Public service announcement, come back. And so, again, um, just uh, getting to that place of like, why am I picking up the food? You know what I mean? Which is where weigh and pay kind of stops. You know, it's like, why am I eating? And then, how do I get past that place? Where I, wanted, where I want food to be my solution again. And this is Linus. For people who weren't here last night. I used the analogy of Linus with the blankie. Like Linus can. And I'm going to talk about me. Linus can go about eight months without his blankie. You know what I mean? And then it's like all of a sudden the reality is that he'll never get the blankie back you know what I mean? It's like, it's okay to put it down for a while and whatever, because in the back of his mind, it's like, well, I'm gonna fail at this eventually and I'll get it back, you know what I mean? And then at eight months for me, it was like, oh wait, I have to never reach for my food again. So that took a while. And also for me, um, after the initial like 15, 20 pounds, after that, I lost 10 pounds every two years because I had to do so much work around feeling safer in a smaller body. And also I at the time I was very frustrated, but I realize now that I really did have to do a lot of work around feeling safer in a smaller body and dealing with all the feelings that came up with Being able to shop in a regular store, um, being a little more visible in the world. You know, we talk about how if you're fat, you're invisible, but, and we sort of complain about that, but we've got to look at how is that serving me to be invisible? Well, for me, it makes me safe. If you're not looking at me, then I'm safe. So, um, so that's kind of what happened. And then, and then I got down to, so I am 5'7. Uh, my top weight was one X, uh, I showed you pictures. Um, my lowest weight was, uh, so I got down to a 10, and then I got down to an eight, and an eight for me, I actually looked a little anorexic. Um, I started to get too thin, and people started to express concerns. So my normal weight for years was a size 10, and then when I hit 50, um, I was like now I'm a 12 and I'm not willing to starve myself to be to have my 30 year old body anymore So anyway, those are just some ideas so when I got down to um, about a 10 and that's when my trauma memories started to surface more and i uh, so I had 13 years in 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 recovery not in oA but in recovery I think I had about seven years, six, seven years in OA. And as I was losing weight, my body was getting smaller and I was getting a lot of sexual attention. Um, these trauma memories started to surface and I already had plenty of memories. Um, but these new memories. And so my story is, is that, um, as I got small, I, um, when the trauma memories hit, I felt devastated. Uh, I, th- that doesn't even begin to capture it. I mean, I was just, I mean, if you could take devastated and create a better word that's even more than annihilated, you know, that it was just, i and I felt, and it was devastating and annihilating, and I felt very betrayed by my higher power. And this is what I want to focus on, is that, I was doing the program and I was, you know, I'm the, I was the same person as I am today except I was, you know, younger. I was 34, 35, and then 36. It was about 34 to 36 these two years that this, these flashes and stuff started happening. It was a very confusing time and, um, and it was coincided with those last 10 pounds making myself even thinner and more sexually um, attractive and I was feeling very sexual in my body and all of this at the same time these memories came up. So here's how I felt very betrayed. So I came in as an agnostic and um, and so I started to develop a, a, a relationship with a higher power and unconsciously, what I did was I created a Santa Claus God. And here's what I did I said, I was like, okay, if I devote myself to this program and work my ass off and do everything that you guys tell me to do, then I will get the promises of this program. And as a young person, I'm coming in and I'm hearing people with time tell stories like, before recovery, I had no job, I had no partner, uh, I wasn't living in a great place, I was whatever, and now that I've done recovery, I have the job, I have the partner, I have the amazing place, right? So it can set up this expectation that, oh, if I do these things, I will get the job, I will get the partner, I will get the dream, whatever the, you know, that's a, and that in my mind created a Santa Claus God. So like I said, I was 23 when I came in. So at 36, when finally the trauma memories surfaced with incredible clarity, I felt like And here's the analogy, like there are all these kids in line going up to Santa Claus, right? And everyone's in line, they go, they sit on Santa Claus lap and Santa Claus hands them a toy. You know what I mean? And each toy is just like, exactly. And it's my turn and I go up and I sit on Santa Claus knees and he hands me incest memories. So that's how it felt for me. And I didn't leave the room, but I felt very betrayed by recovery. I felt very betrayed by this process. At the same time, I knew that what I had been praying for was healing and truth. I had been praying, please, God, help me be closer to you. Please, God, help me be a stronger, please, God, increase my capacity for love. Please, I had actually been praying for that. That's what I wanted more than anything. So my heart was praying for honesty and integrity and an expanded ability to love. My heart was praying to get closer to God, the God of my understanding. But my ego and my head was translating the promises of the program as in all of these rewards. So actually, at 36, I got exactly what I had been praying for, which is I got the truth, And I got an understanding of what was keeping me emotionally isolated from people that I wanted to be close to, including God, including members of my family, um, of my chosen family. And it was like, oh, these are the things that are blocking me off from true intimacy with other people. These are the things that are feeding my sense of shame and isolation. These are the things that are continuing to... Feed the shame hag that tells me that the best solution for every moment is food. And so I had to, you know, address that and I had to understand that. So it was sort of like I got exactly what I was praying for. And on a spiritual level, I did know that. But on a personal, individual, day to day level, I could not help but feel feel betrayed and here's a sort of example it's it's as if you it's as if and, and this may work for you but it may not because not everyone has experienced trauma marriage but it's as if your partner leaves you right but it was a relationship that you were unhappy in and so you it was for your best interest but at the same time you feel betrayed and whatever so it's kind of like on the one hand you feel this sense of devastation you know that the the relationship ended whether they left or you left whatever so there's this even at the same time that you realize that you weren't happy in that relationship and you needed more so so people who don't have that might be a translation for you where at the same time you feel betrayed you also on an on a higher level realize that this is what's best for you and so my i lasted about a month and then i relapsed and up until that time i had only been a compulsive overeater i also was a bulimic even though i was 185 i realized that how i stayed 185 and i didn't keep going up and up and up is i was actually a bulimic of a different kind Therefore basic types of bulimia. Bulimia is like you binge, here's a general definition of bulimia, you binge and then you do something to fix it. So you binge and then maybe you restrict. So a common subtle form of bulimia is you're good all week long, super good on your diet, super clean, and then on the weekend, it's a free for all, and then You like that's a very subtle form of bulimia, and most people do that without realizing it. But a more dramatic form is you binge and then you purge. You you vomit. You do laxatives. You exercise twelve hours, or you under eat for days in a row. The point is is that you binge and then you fix it. So compulsive overeaters they just binge and they just wear it, and then of course so and then anorexics. They just control everything. Um, So it's all the same impulse, food, 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 and then it's just this different reaction. So before that, I was, uh, my subtle form of bulimia was um, to binge and then restrict, or to binge and then exercise. And I didn't know that, because I thought all bulimias had to be thin. So it took doing work, in doing my uh, food history and everything to under, under, uncover these patterns. Well, when at 36, the trauma memory surfaced, um, I, at that point, now I'm a size 10, or actually I was like almost an 8 at that point. So now I binge and now I'm terrified of gaining weight. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm gonna get fat again. And that fear of like, oh my God, I'm gonna get fat. And so that's when I taught myself how to purge. Now the problem with that is, is that then I got to experience, and for people who purge, you know this, this vicarious feeling of throwing up all of my uncomfortable feelings. Because for people who don't know, when you, after you throw up, your body thinks you're sick. And so then it floods you with endorphins. Because it thinks that you know that you've had something, some sort of illness, and so it's trying to take care of you. So for me, the hook of bulimia is that my feelings would get so overwhelming, and so like, and and that I just wanted the feeling of getting them out. And so then I would, I started binging and purging, and then also um, it was such a violent act that when I was angry, it gave me this sense of you know, like, yeah, let's get this out. And that um, that was my first major relapse. Uh, I did get out of that through some harm reduction techniques, um, but here's what I want to focus on around that, was that was a perfect example of how I can't, I had, I had no God at that point because the God that I had created for myself, you know, and for me, God is—I actually think of God as group of dames, you know what I mean. But you can also do good, orderly direction. Uh, A.A. can do group of drunks, but again, I think of this collective, you know, um, something beautiful, something mysterious, energy that that loves and supports all of us. So. But that's what I have now. At the time, I had manifested this sort of personal God that doled out rewards. And I was like, and that was left over from my Catholic um, family. I wasn't raised in a parochial school. I was just raised by Catholic mother and Catholic aunts. So again, this idea of a Santa Claus God. If I do this, then these things will happen. Well... So this is what I want to focus on around um, my this major relapse was I was in the rooms and i and I had no higher power. The other thing that I had done at that point was i I came into the rooms and it said, "Oh, you need a higher power." and so I developed. You know, I, I did writing on it. I did third step writing. I did homework writing. I talked to sponsors about it. And I started cobbling together my version of God. And then I was focused on that relationship. And that's, again, I was still, this is when I realized I was still attending 12 step. You know, I was still like, okay, I've got my relationship with God over here and then I come here as if this is a classroom and I'm learning from you all about how I'm supposed to do my program over here and how I'm supposed to develop a relationship over here. Almost as if another analogy would be as if we were all in a marriage class, right? And so we go to uh this classroom that we're all in that talks about how to have a better marriage. And then we're like, "Oh, okay." And we take notes, and maybe we talk about, you know, marriage. And then we go over here and we focus on this relationship here. So this relapse that I went through was when I was like I don't even I was so angry at God that I remember telling someone, "I know that I don't want to divorce God, but right now he's sleeping on the couch. I can't even look at him. Like that's how angry I was at this concept of God. And I and so that means now if the solution to the program, if the solution to my disease, you know what I mean, is a spiritual connection, I've got none. So that left me incredibly vulnerable um, and very susceptible to the disease because basically my sponsee and I talk about that my disease is an ex-boyfriend who's, you know, very, I personally think of him as an Irish um mafia rugby player, like he's super sexy, you know, and he's super good in bed and he's so bad for me and he's so controlling. And so we make jokes around like when this relationship, if I turn away from my relationship with God, my disease, who's that super sexy Irish player, Irish rugby player is like, in the basement, he's got a room in the basement, like he never moves out, that's the thing, like don't don't even for a second kid yourself that your disease isn't lurking. he never zoos, but he's down there lifting weights and walking around naked and playing our favorite song, you know what I mean, and all of a sudden I start thinking about how good the sex was, I forget the rest, I forget how he wouldn't let me go anywhere, he didn't like any of my friends, you know, I forget about all the verbal abuse he's said to me, I just think about how good the sex was and how wonderful it felt to be like held by him and to have someone like that's what the disease can do. It starts to tell me around like how wonderful food is and what food can do for me. And so that was kind of my relapse is like I was, And I started to turn back to the food. But fortunately, I never left the rooms and I never stopped believing that 12-step was um, my solution. It was so painful. And so I was very lucky in that at that time, what happened was my sugar addiction had hit a bottom. Like I came into the rooms and I was like, I know I have a problem with sugar. But when I came in, you know, it was in the 90s and there were so many people eating sugar that i was i kept justifying like well they can eat it so maybe i can eat it once a month so then it turned out to like oh i would eat it i would be like i worked at a law firm where once a month we had birthday date so for everyone in the law firm they would have i would be like okay on the law firm birthday date i get to have birthday cake and birthday cake is like that for me Nothing beats birthday cake. Like, my version of heaven is alone, naked, with sheet cake. I'm just like, yes. You know what I mean? And and for me, like, everyone has their magical food. Like, it's not just, like, food. It's, like, magical. And for me, birthday cake, because I was so neglected growing up. But on my birthday, I got birthday cake, and it was mine. And I got to eat it. They, on, my, on the night of my birthday, everyone got a piece. After that, it was my cake. And so again, it's this magical cake. So I was like, okay, birthday, I'll have that. Then it was, I'll, I, get, I get sugar on the law firm date and the night before my period. Then it was, I get birthday, I get cake. So it started being like, okay, the night before my period and the night my period starts. And it just kept getting like, until all of a sudden I was like in the sugar all the time. So the thing with the relapse is, and this is the gift of relapse, is I hit a whole new bottom. I'm there. I am. I'm back in the sugar now. All of a sudden I'm bulimic. I'm purging. You know, I I lose my faith in the God that I had that I had worked so hard to create. But I have the gift of knowing I'm in the right place. I know not to leave 12-step. I know that OA is my solution. So what I did was, because of the sugar thing, and because at that time, no one was identifying as a sugar addict, I went, I, I was in another program, and this woman was in AA, and I said, I asked her to sponsor me As if I were an alcoholic, but instead if we could talk about sugar. And she agreed. And so she treated me like her AA sponsee. And what we did is we changed the word alcohol to sugar. And it was a beautiful thing. And so the homework assignments that you see on my list, the homework that I take everyone through, all those step assignments on my podcast when I go through it, that's all from Kimberly. If she was like, we had to meet every week, it was like no joke. And let me give you an example. Before this happened, about you know, a few years before, there was a guy who spoke at a meeting and he had amazing recovery. I asked to get his name, and I called him up and I said, Will you sponsor me? And he said, Yes. And he said, So, what we'll do is you'll call me every day and Um, We'll meet once a week. And my response to that was, whoa, dude, you are taking this program way too seriously. And I just hung up. I was just like, no, that's not going to work for me. Sorry. Click. You know, that was about like a few years before when I went up to Kimberly and I was so desperate and I was in relapse and I was like, I'm dying. I'm going to kill myself with this disease. I went up to her and I asked her. You know, will you please sponsor me? She had to ask her sponsor. She came back and she said, my sponsor said I could. I said, great. She said, you're going to have to call me every day. And we're going to meet Sundays at 10 a.m. And on the inside, I freaked out. But what came out of my mouth was, okay. And that is the place that it's like, I, and I want to stop here for just a minute. Because I want to give people some time. That, I cannot fake that place of gift of desperation. Like, and I, I can't make myself, I can't make that moment happen any sooner and I can't make it happen any sooner for my sponsees. So I'm going to have to wrap this up awkwardly because I want to make sure you all have time. But basically that was the moment where I just said yes. I will do whatever. And I didn't just say the words, yes. I actually internally completely surrendered and was like, I don't care. I'll do whatever. I will do whatever. And that was the beginning of learning that recovery takes two powers. Recovery, to, and it's in the books. It's in the literature. Go read it recovery takes a personal higher power and it takes the power of the fellowship. And that was when I realized I had to stop attending meetings. I had to stop attending recovery as if it was a classroom. And I had to join OA as if it was a tribe. And that I had to care about everyone in the rooms as if I cared about my tribe. And I had to become fully invested. And when that happened and I went through the steps again, that's when I developed a life beyond my wildest dreams. Now here's the crazy thing. For newcomers, I can tell you, I have the relationships. I have the job. I have the apartment. But those are external to the internal transformation that I have gone through. I did not seek those things out. What I sought was an, an internal, uh, what it's called a personality change, sufficient to bring about spiritual serenity or spiritual recovery. That's what I went for. That's what I focused all of my energy on was the restructuring of my insides and the healing of my shame and my trauma and the connecting and the being of service and the carrying message. And while I was focused on that, these other things happened. For people who are familiar with you know, being in a boat, you know, I drove my boat and then there's the wake. It's like, I was just focused on increasing my relationship to God and being of service to my fellows and expanding my ability to receive and give love. That's what I was focusing on. And then from that, my life got bigger in a way that I didn't understand. So I wanna wrap it up. It doesn't give you much time, but it gives you 15 minutes. So again, thank you for your kind attention. It means so much to me. Um, And then uh, I wanna open it up for uh, questions or shares or anything like that. So thank you. I will call on people. So (laughs) for people who, we here last night. Does anyone want to jump in? Thank you, Carla. Ev, do you want to join the technology?
1: Sure. Uh, I love the soup. I just love technology. I'm a computer person. I love sitting on my computer and doing spreadsheets and that. I'm an accountant by trade. So, and a numbers person, black and white, and OA has really helped me in in dealing with that. Thank you for your sharing. Uh, Not watery at all. Uh, This program is amazing. I came in at the depths of despair. I knew I was totally out of control of the food. And so this program is my family. For me, it became my family. I could trust, I could say whatever I wanted to, and it was okay. I cried in the rooms when I dealt with my inadequacy as a mother, and people just, let me cry, not, oh, it's okay, Eve. it's okay, you did the best you can. you know, and uh, no, I really appreciated that. Do, I've done a lot of healing in these rooms because of that family, learning about the higher power and learning to trust them, but I still got a ways to go with that. I mean, I know who's there and that, uh, went to, The physio yesterday came out, came out, totally discombumbled, and realized I forgot to bring God in with me. And, you know, there you go. And so it was unclear to me. So, yeah, still learning at times that I was thinking, well, I didn't even think. I just went in there. Well... There you go. I forgot to hook arms and go in. Uh, That's all I have to say for today. Thank you for uh, your pitch. Glad to be here.
0: Thank you, Ev. Thank you so much. Any other brave people this morning who just maybe want to just claim your seat? You don't have to say anything profound. Just join us.
2: Um, I just want to share with you, Nicole, how much your analogy of my disease is like an ex-boyfriend spoke, spoke to me um, because I was, I was in a bad relationship. My very first boyfriend was very, very bad. And um, it, it was great sex and it was emotionally and I would I would leave him and I would be like, Yes, it's over, we're done, don't call me and he would drive away from where we broke up and I would call him and I would say, Don't leave me. Yep. Don't ever leave me. Yep. And so coming to that place of strength. Yep. Where I'm like, I don't need you. You're hurting me too much just really, really touched me this morning and how my disease is like that and all I can remember is the good things. And all I can remember is how good I feel and how, and just that blanket analogy as well. Yeah. Of Linus, just that, that comfort and really coming to a place of, you're hurting me too much. You're hurting me too much. And I don't
0: want that anymore. So I just wanted to share but that Not really touched me. Thank you,
2: Teresa. Thank
0: you. And I'd also like to dilate. Marie, I see your hand. I'd also like to dilate for a little bit, which is is that that's exactly right. And we cannot get out of that relationship alone. We cannot do that. If we could we would have, and there would be no need for twelve step. We are powerless over the disease of compulsive overeating. We're powerless over addiction. You know what I mean? And and I can do a whole nother workshop on just addiction and powerlessness and where it is in the brain and why the only way that we can get out of these kinds of relationships where it is an addictive relationship because where there is addiction, there is shame. Boom, it's like, it's like where there is grass, there is green. I mean, you can't separate the two. And so again, you know, and where there is addiction, there is shame and where there is shame, there is isolation. You know, and so the first thing a perpetrator needs to do is get you alone, you know, and then it's your shame that will keep you from joining and getting the the higher power that you need so that you can break out of the addiction. And for people who don't have a lot of time, I know that those of us who do can tell you it really is a 24-hour program. You never graduate. Every day I need to take my medicine for my addiction, you know? He never, in that analogy that I shared last night around the sexy boyfriend, he's in my basement all the time. When my program is strong, I can't hear him at all. I don't even know he's down there. He never moves out. And he never gets ugly, by the way. He doesn't age, he doesn't lose his six pack, you know what I mean, none of that happens. But when my recovery is strong, I don't know he's down there in that basement studio. But when my recovery is when I hear him dropping his weights that he just did after pumping himself up and making sure he's nice and sexy. I hear him. I hear him playing music. And here's the thing. As soon as you start to hear it, pick up the phone. All you have to do is get out of isolation. You don't have to be, you don't have to be smart. You don't have to do anything. You just have to be like, you know, and my sponsee and I will start saying he's playing my song or he's playing our song, you know what I mean? Like he's trying to lure me, you know? And so again, that's where you play the videotape to the end. So for example, in this analogy, you know, you're thinking of his charm, the best sex you've ever had. You know what I mean? You're thinking of those things and that lures you. And for the food, you're imagining that first bite. You're imagining the lure, you're imagining the comfort. It's like, okay, stop. Play the videotape through to the end because your mind is paused on that moment of elation, that moment of like satisfaction and saturation and comfort and whatever, and your mind is fixated on that. You've got the pause button on. Take your finger off the pause. Play the video. The video keeps going. You finish what you're eating. Then you eat more. Then you finish eating, now you're in a shame spiral because you just ate and you just whatever. Now your your brain starts going. Now you don't want to tell people what you did. Now you're imagining having to tell people whatever. Play it to the end and if you're bulimic, Now your face is in the toilet or you're freaking out about your body or you're going into self-loathing. So play the videotape to the end. And again, don't rely on your own power because your own power, if you could have done it in your own power, you would have, you wouldn't be in this program. So as soon as your disease starts playing your song, pick up the phone, text, anything, and just say, my disease is playing our song. You know what I mean? And then let people respond. So, Marie, you've been very patient. No oh, thanks.
3: Um, I had an interesting conversation today, and it was just about our mind and what it does. Um, we were talking about being raised to be the good girl, to make everything nice. Everybody should be happy with you under all circumstances. Don't make any waves. And I um, that if you set boundaries, it's the same thing as making waves. And it's, the mind just twisted the truth so much. Uh, And it really can mess a person up and it changes my perspective about everything. Uh, We were talking about boundaries and boundary lines. And she said, oh, but if I, don't, if I set boundaries, that I'm going to be trapped in them. And I said, no, boundaries free you. The boundaries are for the other people so that they can't come in and stomp on you. But the shame of not keeping that other person happy, no matter what they do, is, is so great. Um, it, it was just an amazing conversation and, and the talking and knowing that shame was connected to it, of of not staying in your place, in your role, and and doing the behaviors you're taught to do growing up. Just that I'd share that. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Marie. Also, um, there was a meme that went around that was really great, and it um, I'm going to butcher it. But basically, it was a quote that said, uh, a boundary is the distance w- bet- where I can love you and myself simultaneously. So to wrap your mind, a boundary is where I can love myself and you. And so if I'm struggling with either one of those, then some, my boundary has been transgressed and I need to step back um, I'll see if I can find that quote, because I butchered it, but it's, you know, it's true. So we've got a few more minutes. Um, the men have been incredibly quiet and patient. Is anyone f- feeling brave? Stan, Larry, Claude, you anyone of you feeling a little brave to speak?
2: My name's Stan. I am a composable reader, and uh, I'm just listening today, so... I'm uh, here trying to learn some tools. I've been in the program since 86, had 10 years of abstinence, uh, good abstinence, and then kind of got lost for a, a long time and have come in and out. And now really with Zoom have really been able to go to meetings again and, and join it. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Stan. Thanks for claiming your seat. My other experience, I want to finish, wrap up, I want to make sure to get this in, is is that, um, so this morning I talked about my first major relapse, last night when I told my shame story, that was my second major relapse, that was the one where, so what those two things have in common is when it's time for me to take my recovery to the next level, which means It requires more vulnerability on my part. Because to be open-hearted is to have an open heart, which in my personal story, in my mind, equals vulnerable equals victim. Vulnerable equals victimization. Vulnerable equals target. So every time that I start to move forward in my program and my heart wants to heal and heal and heal. It wants to be bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I'm being asked to move into a deeper, more vulnerable, loving state of, of being. And sometimes I hit that wall. You know what I mean? I hit that wall of fear. And that's when all of a sudden I don't want to keep going. My My sponsor tells me there's no coasting in in twelve step, if you're coasting, you're going downhill. You know, there's only moving forward, and moving forward is developing deeper intimacy, a deeper spirituality, deeper connection, which requires more vulnerability. And here's what I can tell you: if you stay in the room and if you keep um, doing the work. You will learn to only be vulnerable with people who are worthy of your trust and vulnerability. So it takes a little bit of rewiring, but that will happen. You will learn, or I have learned, that I don't want to close my heart down anymore. So if I'm with someone who requires me to close my heart, I will do the boundary thing where it's like, okay, I need to keep you at a distance where I can stay open-hearted and not targeted by your toxicity. So, you know, it's basically if people are verbally shooting arrows, you know, with little cutting remarks or little put down, I'm like, okay, you're going to shoot arrows. So I'm going to keep myself at a distance that when you shoot your little arrows, they actually fall like about three feet away from me because, you know, I surround myself with loving people who, who value me and value my heart And we practice being loving and kind to each other. So um, it's 8.59. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tina, for um, uh, claiming your seat. Thank you, my Canadian friends. And I look forward to the rest of this retreat.